0: This is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. What do we mean by the word inspiration? What do we mean when we say that the authors of the Bible were inspired? is scripture a collection of private interpretations or formed by the creative work of the holy spirit is every word of scripture god's own find out on this episode of confessional theology
1: so if uh, i did mention to you it'd be helpful if you brought uh, a digital Uh, did anybody do that i hope you we don't have any hard copies Here's the handout that you should have uh, found. Hopefully you found it. Um, so, he, you know, there's a couple of, uh, you know, I've already quoted Dawkins and some other, uh, other things here. Um, but let me just read this quote from Benjamin Warfield, which is a nice little summary. "...there is certainly in the whole mass of confessional literature no more nobly conceived or ably wrought out statement of doctrine than this chapter." He's talking about Westminster. "...placed at the head of the confession and laid at the foundation of their system of doctrine. If it be compared in its details with the teachings of Scripture, it will be found to be but the careful and well-guarded statement of what is delivered by Scripture concerning itself." If it be tested in the cold light of scientific theology, it will commend itself as a reasoned statement, remarkable for the exactness of its definitions and the close connections of the parts. Now, all that to say that we um, we are going to turn now to our confession of faith, and um, but to do that, there's a couple of scriptures I want you to have in your head. One, and again, we're looking at the nature of Scripture, sections one through five of the confession. Now, by the way, I hope that you had a chance to read your confession. Um, we're not going to always be reading all of it. That would take us close to half the time. But, um, but if you've read it, um, then you'll be familiar with it. But a couple of passages that we particularly are interested in when we talk about the nature of Scripture is Second Timothy 3.16 and Second Peter one nineteen and following. Could someone read one, one of those and somebody else? If you could read that for us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Okay, Peter? Uh, uh, 2 Peter uh, 119. So we have the prophetic message more
2: fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture Is a matter of one's own interpretation.
1: That no prophecy ever can abide by human will. That men and
2: women, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And then Hebrews. Hebrews 1 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has
1: spoken to us of His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So there's really three um, very important truths that come out about the nature of Scripture in these passages. Uh, very briefly, we're going to unpack them a little bit. But notice the word inspired in the first reading. All Scripture is inspired by God. That is a very huge word in confessional theology. And we'll want to unpack that for you a little bit. Uh, to help us unpack that, we're going to look at 2 Peter And you'll notice particularly how it adds to that idea of inspiration, one, that it is not uh, someone's own thoughts or interpretation. That we're going to distinguish that from, say, the experiential, uh, 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 a kind of experience-based interpretation of what's happening in the world, say, in the life of Paul. Um, it really is meant to convey that, that, that the scripture um, comes from an outside source. So that's interesting, that word, inspire. Hebrews 1 is going to make the case that this scripture um, is something that that unve- is unveiled over a redemptive history. It's something that is meant to be, well, a narrative. Uh, There's a sense in which to understand Scripture, it's not a systematic uh, treatise on doctrine. Uh, It's not a, uh, uh, you know, but there's a story. It's it's, going to come through the story of God and his redemption with humanity. The redeeming of humanity. So just keep those three ideas in the back of your head, because that's going to come out in a lot of what we're going to do here, okay? So with that in mind, um, notice then how Westminster uh, will, will describe that in the chapter 1, section 1. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners. Hebrews, you hear it? "...to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan, and the world to commit the same wholly into writing." That's very important. So we got revelation, through diverse manners and at sundry times, the story... Holy into writing, the word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y is very significant. Which then maketh up the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God, revealing His will unto His people, being now ceased. That is a mouthful, but that's the sufficiency statement. No more for needing more. we got what we need. And then, of course, the second, in chapter 8, you hear this idea that it was uh, in the, it it was, there was, the scripture comes to us, but it it did not come to us in, uh, you know, God language. If there's, you know, I can't imagine how God, the F- Father, Son, Holy Spirit, talk to each other. That's we won't go there. But whatever and however it is, I, I, even if they have to talk verbally, um, you know, the clear point of this is that it, it's coming to us in native language, um, in the pe- in the language of the people of old. So they are keeping in mind that we believe that the real, the holy Scripture is the Greek, in the Hebrew, and a little bit Aramaic. You know, is is what the language of our Scripture is. So when you read Scripture, you're all, immediately you're reading a translation, which we can talk about a little bit later. But that's the point that he's making here. Um, and then it gets into, to the, I won't go into this, but um, the, the importance then of, of, but of studying the Scripture in the, uh, in the original language. And, and therein we have something that's going to relate to the qualifications of being, being a pastor or a preacher in a church. So, that there can be that access, giving the access, mediating that access to the body of Christ. So, what is inspiration? Well, I'll give you a definition here, which I want to really focus on. And again, we're looking at the nature of Scripture. It's the process in which the words of Scripture are made by the Holy Spirit, working through reasonable human agents to be revelatory without usurping the personality and mind of the writers. It's a creative work of the Holy Spirit through human instruments. Um, there's some very important statements there. Notice, 2 Timothy, the word uh, that, you, that, is in, that is translated inspired is, is a word that could just as well be translated God-breathed. It's not that it's, it's, it's almost that he exhales it into and out of the author. And so, Scripture breathes, not not Scripture breathed into writers by God, but rather breathed out of of writers into our, in in their vernacular to us. Um, So, that's the idea of inspiration. Notice, Peter, again, it's not a private interpretation. It's more than simply being an eyewitness of historical events, though, as well. But it's the interpretation of those events given by God as well. So God is giving a divinely inspired interpretation of these significant, supernatural, historical, redemptive events. Um, Notice that John 10, for instance, Jesus will defend by the authority of Scripture being that of God Himself. Scripture and God lay so close together in the minds of the writers of Scripture, they spoke of Scripture doing what only God can do, Uh, the oracles of God. And you will see that's accredited to the Word of God is a divinity in itself. Um, you, you know, the Word, you know, became flesh. But the Word is, uh, is used there to describe God. And of course we were introduced to the Word in John, in chapter 1, where it is the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the, 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 in the beginning and in the, in the world was created by that Word. So all through redemptive history, already we're beginning to get a sense that, that there's something, um, I want to say, mystical about Scripture. About these words, these oracles of God. It's more than just a book, it's more than just prose and, 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 and sentences, though it's that. But we see power given to the Word of God, it changes things. You know, um, for the for the word of God to come into this world, it comes and it and all through. You think of Hebrews where it has this a power that that cuts you know to the soul. Um, it's it's it's. I don't want to say the word magical because that's not what we think Scripture is. But in a very common use of that word today, it there's a magic to it. I, I want you to get that sense. Um, there is, I believe something powerful about reading scripture in worship there's something powerful at sitting at a deathbed and just reading scripture and w- while we don't think it's magic in the sense that that it, any more than say the sacraments are magic but we do believe that the scripture unlike you know C.S. Lewis is divinely inspired and therefore has a, a promise attached to it of efficacy, a promise of power that C.S. Lewis, as great as he is, and I choose him as hoping to think of someone you would think of if you're familiar with him, uh, that is as good as it gets in terms of a Christian apologist or whatever, but the scripture is a different category. It's a different genre. How else can I explain this? Um, it is inspired by God. The best book in the world written by the best Christian author, we can't say is inspired by God in the way that we're talking about Scripture. And that's very significant, because notice then to break apart what we've said and what we haven't said. It's true that therefore when we think of Scripture, there there is an assumption here that God in His infinite wisdom by His providence decided, evidently, well that Hebrew was a good language to communicate through. Or that Hebrew being of the history of the people of the history of redemption that channels back all the way to Adam, well that's a good history because that history was divinely orchestrated to be the things that Scripture is going to be talking about and interpreting as to give us that revelation. So now what I've just said, notice, is this. Not only is Scripture the words, the verbal, the words that's in the Bible, but there's a whole set of historical events and providence that those words are rooted and grounded in, that give uh, authority and meaning to those words. There's a in diverse manners statement in Hebrews. So the preparation of the men, physically, intellectually, or women, physically, intellectually, spiritually, and even personality, all of that we're just going to consider as part of the divine providence, by which, and and all of that's going to show up when you read your Bible. If you read John, and then go and read, uh, uh, say, Paul, both written in Greek, you, if you've been, if you know, when I'm preaching those, I could almost tell you. I mean, when you get pretty familiar with it, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a John, that's a John kind of thing. That sounds like John. John talks like that. And I'd go to Paul and I say, well, Paul talks like that. So, don't think of inspiration now as a dictation. We don't believe that inspiration is God, Um, okay, take out your pen, Paul, here it comes, there's going to be a voice, and dot, 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 dot. I think it's even a greater miracle that it's not like that. The greater miracle is that He controls the thoughts and the minds and the history of all of history, And all that precedes Paul, that by the time we get to Paul, Paul now in his mind, in his providence, in his circumstance, all of that becomes a lens perfectly suited by what God is doing in his inner person by the Holy Spirit to bring out the miracle this is God's Word. Now, that is a really important observation. Some people are going to say, but, you know, how can we get beyond the cultural lens of these original authors? We're going to say we don't want to. We're going to just decide that if he spoke in Greek, well, we're going to, we're going to understand him and, and, and we're going to go and take the time to understand Greek. Um, if he is uh, in a context like he is, that's the providence of God that's going to help us to understand some of that. And so we're going to understand the Scripture to the degree that we are willing to do you know, a, a historical, contextual study. We're going to understand Scripture to the degree that we're going to understand a little bit about the language and how the language is used. And not that that takes that away from you. It doesn't. Your English translations are incredibly accurate. Even the differences, you can still see that they're speaking the same content, more or less. Um, But what it does do is it helps control back to this issue of can we get to any objective truth and interpretation? Already I'm setting you up here for the question of sufficiency. How is that? Because already what I'm saying to you is that no, this could be a bad translation, this could be a good translation to the degree that we contextualize it. To the degree that we listen to Paul and Paul's own words and how those words are used elsewhere by Paul... We're going to be able to check it, we're going to be able to study it, we're going to be able to prove it. No, this is not the way that Paul uses his words. We have many instances of that word and how it's used by Paul, or there's many instances of that word and how it's used in his day, and that word is not the same way. If I say the word, that's sick, I hope somebody will, uh, if I say to you, my wife is just sick, man. Um, I hope and pray that 300 years from now, if everybody had any reason to ever study what I say and do, which they won't. But if they did, I hope they'll, they'll do the, take the time to ask, well, how was that word used precisely in that 21st century moment? And they're going to discern that, oh, you know, that, that could have been a really great compliment. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He wasn't you know, bashing his wife. You know, there was this usage in semantic history of, of the word being, that's just, inc- what, sick means great my wife is great. And that's what that would be stating, you see. But that's important, because notice what we're not doing. We're we're beginning to see here an objectivity to reading Scripture. It's not just a subjective experience. My subjective experience needs to be tested by the objectivity that is codified right into the Word of God, in the context of a particular covenant, there's your redemptive history part in the context of a particular age and language and all of that stuff becomes important so that you can say, yeah, God's speaking to me. Thus saith the Lord. And there's an objective content that lords over my subjectivity when I study it. So that's the first point. Inspiration is this involves this process. And two, the preparation of the history, which is the subject matter of Scripture. You will notice in the, in the Word, a pattern. You know, a lot of us kind of think that we link to the Bible, we lump it all together, and we think, God, wouldn't it be just cool to live back in the days of the Bible? And what are we thinking? We're thinking, all those great miracles, all those great events. Well, you know, there was, uh, you know, there's a passage in Peter about the world that then was, speaking of the world before Noah, and the world that now is. And and most people would, would understand that to say that the world before Noah was longer and greater than even the world since Noah, is what he's saying. There's a lot of distance. There is a lot of gaps of supernatural redemptive activity. I mean, how much time goes from Adam even to Seth? We know that from Adam to Cain, by the time we get to Cain, there's a whole civilization out there that's about to kill him. You see why? No, that tells you something. The Bible's a history of redemption history, it's not a science history, it's not a genealogical history. It's a redemptive history, tracing redemptive covenant heads. Those who are eventually, according to Matthew, going to get you right in Jesus. And when we get to Cain and Abel, we already got a civilization going on. And by the time we get to Seth and then that line begins to pull off, you're going through that, you know, so we don't, we want to remember that because um, what's important about that is that, that therefore um, you have the way that God speaks to us is through what we decide, what we, you can observe in scripture, a word, deed, word pattern. By word, I mean there is, there's a prophetic expectation based on previous revelation as to what to expect in the future. And then the future happens. God gives Abraham, you saw this week, a great promise in chapter 12, you know, about, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, boy, there's now, if I were to do a graph, you know, one of those graphs, kind of like an, uh, a cardiogram or whatever it is, uh, you know, what do you call that? EKG. You know, where it goes, you know, kind of shows you the little dots. Well, you would have in redemptive history, there'd be whole periods where there's just a flat line, Dead no heartbeat. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you would have it just spike, all kinds of dots. And then it'd just go dead again. And that's, I'm thinking of creation. I'm thinking of the flood. Boom. I'm thinking of the Red Sea. Boom. You know, I'm thinking of the, and you go through these moments, and what you have is a word, deed, word, problem. Prob. Now, why do you think that's important? Because now we're learning that by the nature of Scripture and the way it comes to us through a redemptive history, that we're going to interpret Scripture by that history. That history is going to help now again help us to understand how do we understand the meaning of the Holy Scripture. It's interesting that people think of the prophets as foretelling the future. Only about 10% of the prophets, by the way, talk about the future. Most of it is not. But even when they do, The number one rule of understanding the prophets is read Deuteronomy. You know why? Because Deuteronomy is the law of God, the the previous revelation of God vis-a-vis Moses, wherein we are told through this covenant contract what to expect if you do well and what to expect if you don't do well. And you know the prophets weren't really that smart. I'm being fun with you. Because they kind of had a nice little insight here. I'm going to go read read Deuteronomy, I'm going to look at what Israel's doing, and I'm going to tell them what's going to happen to them. Because Deuteronomy told us. Oops. Now isn't that interesting? You see, the word, deed, word pattern. You had this great, amazing, redemptive act of the, of the exodus... And we have a contract, they come out of that, they form covenant with God, the way in which God brings himself through, uh, 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 it's in itself a condescension, in the sense that he brings himself and articulates his plan through a media that would have been very common to them, which is contract making. So he makes a contract with humanity, like he did with Adam. And in that contract, there's the different parts. You know, here's what I promise, here's what the curse will be, here's what I expect of you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to interpret the rest of redemptive history. Paul is going to be referencing that. So now what are you getting? You're understanding that by the very nature of the Scripture, the way in which it comes to us both through the agency of human history, but also through the agency of a redemptive history, all we believe divinely planned and orchestrated by God, acting in, with, and through history by the power of the Holy Spirit, it makes sense then that, that if you want to be filled with the Spirit, if you want to listen, if you want the Holy Spirit to, <laughs> to... Who wrote the Scripture? All in all, when you think of all this history, and all this activity in Paul's life, let's say, if, if you're reading, uh, uh, say, Romans, well, who's, who gave us the Scripture? According to Peter, the Holy Spirit gave us Scripture. But when he says the Holy Spirit gave his scripture, he doesn't mean now in your head what? He doesn't mean the Holy Spirit dictated to Paul words. He means the Holy Spirit who hovered over creation and made creation, who hovered over the Noah waters of the flood and made a great redemptive act there, the Holy Spirit who hovered over the Red Seas and made a great event there, and a Holy Spirit who providentially brought us to now a guy like Paul who had a Holy Spirit encounter with Jesus Christ and he was called into relationship with Christ, and a Holy Spirit who very carefully worked in Paul's heart and mind and and ability even to understand the Holy Spirit. scriptures that had come before him, and the histories in a way that he could have an accurate, even infallible interpretation of what God is saying to us. That's the word inspiration. Now, does that change your view of Scripture a little bit? Um, so think about what this we've said. Scripture is a verbal. What that means is that we inspiration means the very words of the canonical text, not merely the writers or general concepts, are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. The words themselves, verbal inspiration. That's interesting because right now we hear this, of course, in the Kavanaugh thing, but we are certainly going to be textualists now. Now, I'm not speaking to the issue of how to interpret the Constitution. That's, out of, that's another category. I don't think the Constitution is breathed out by God, so that is not my field of, don't, don't try to think I'm getting into politics here. I'm not. But if you're familiar with that sort of original intent or this idea of a, of a, a textualist, already I have just led you right to the trough of, okay, we believe that, that the most, that given the nature of the Bible... We, we are going to understand that the way we will read it is as textualist. It's the words themselves. We're going to believe it's plenary, which means it extends to all parts of the Bible, not a partial inspiration. We're going to believe it's confluent. That means the divine and the human interaction flow together such that the individual personalities and styles are not suppressed. That's going to teach us a little bit more about how to interpret Scripture. And it's going to be inerrant. The text of the Scripture is true, and all, and here's how we say it, all that it intends to affirm. Um, This is going to be a big issue. One of the things I thought somebody was going to say, why don't people believe the Bible? Well, because it's all of its errors. There are tons of errors in the Bible. Tons. There are tons of discrepancies in the Bible. Tons. You bothered by that? You're waiting for me, aren't you? Because I just said it's infallible. I just said there's no error. You're not sure how to handle that. Well, I handle it with this last statement: the text of Scripture is true in all that it intends to affirm. If you're reading John, uh, Mark's Gospel, there's going to be a fig tree wilting on the way to the temple. If you're reading, I think it's Matthew's Gospel or Luke's Gospel, it's going that event's going to happen after he leaves the temple. Oh, there's the proof. No. The purpose of the Gospels, the intention of the Gospels, is to write a theology and to introduce Christ. And they're putting together events in a manner to tell the story that will get you to what that author wants you to understand about Christ. It's not meant to be a pure history. It's it's historically based but we're not going to impose a historian's criteria on the bible because the purpose of the bible is to to reveal salvation to humanity in the person of christ eventually that's a different purpose when you read creation we're not going to impose upon the creation story modern science questions it's not even envisioned in fact, most of Genesis, if you understand it in its context, is meant to, to refute a myth of creation, um, and uses a lot of language from that, and particularly the dualism that was in that myth. So you're going to see creation set up, and we'll talk about when we get there, very carefully by, by Moses, I believe, in a manner that you will, that, you, that the, the, uh, the idolatry that was circulating in that day will be exposed. And yet the purpose is not to tell you, you know, how exactly the world was created. There's, in my mind you could be an evolutionist or not, you can't be a, an atheistic evolutionist, you can't be an evolutionist without there being a divinely provi- providentially guided evolution. But it's just not, it's not even conceived of in the Bible that it's talking to you about evolution. It's talking about salvation. And the beginning of the chapter of Genesis, chapter one, is to tell you who God is. Well, let me tell you who God is. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if you understand Genesis 1, as he puts together the kingdoms and their rulers, and the kingdoms and their rulers, and the kingdoms and their rulers. And then there's this one king on the seventh day over all the rulers, over all the kingdoms. And we now know there is no dualism, there is nobody greater than this God. It's a theology of redemption. And so that's the point we're saying about inerrancy. Um, I'm going to give you a chance to do questions. I'm not going to go through this. Um, defense of inspiration of Scripture, blah, 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 blah. Um, you can review this. How would you argue uh, for the Scripture from Scripture itself? Uh, this would be the kind of stuff that, that you could speak to the Dawkins quote and say, well, Dawkins, you know, you're using Scripture against itself. That's what his argument was doing. Here's another way to use Scripture to reaffirm itself, if you will. But of course that sounds like a, what, a tautology or a, uh, you know, how, how can Scripture defend itself sort of idea? Well, it doesn't have to. But I'm just giving you at least biblically, if you're already a Christian and you believe in God, you believe in Jesus Christ, well, to see the way Jesus Christ uses Scripture and references it is going to be useful to you. To say, okay, I can believe in Scripture because Jesus did. And he used it that way. So that's kind of what I've got here. Defensive inspiration of Scripture here. Case one, case two. Now here's the thing I want to be careful. Um, So now we're moving closer to from the nature of Scripture to the function of Scripture and the way we use it. So the person, work, nature, Scripture's inspired by God. And we just went and unpacked all that vis-a-vis redemptive history. What that's going to mean is it's going to rule out a couple of views of, of, of how to read the Bible that don't affirm an inspiration perspective. Okay, and here's some of what they are, and I think you'll recognize them. I'm just putting labels on them, but they're, you know, I, I kind of hate labeling anything, but you've got to. So let's just call the first one the liberal Protestant view. There, with this low view of, of inspiration, the biblical author is inspired. The location of the word moves to the writer, original writer. The locus then moves from what has been written to what the author experienced. And so therefore, you identify the experience of the author, and then a person can experience it, him or herself. It's a kind of either a psychologizing of the author, or even original intent can go astray on this one. An author that might have had an expectation—you could probably make the case that when the, script, when the New Testament authors are writing about the, the the last days, that they anticipated those last days being much shorter than probably if they were living today. They would, if they were to come back there. I, I was thinking maybe, you know, maybe even my lifetime, but if not, pretty shortly afterwards. Um, that's that's okay. Because I'm going to interpret the r- words that came through them, not their experience or hopes or dreams or expectations. That's not going to bother me, even if I could say that's true, and I'm not sure it is, actually. But, but you see the difference. Or for, but here's where this would go. Um, look, we, have you seen a resurrection later? You, you haven't? You haven't? Have you, have you all seen a resurrection? We all know that's stupid, okay? We just all know that. De facto, let's rule that out. That just doesn't happen. So therefore, really what's happening is, is Paul had a major life experience, a transformative experience. And, and, and the myth language, common to that era, is the language that Paul utilized to try to bring about to you. So you know what? Let's go around the room. Have you had that experience yet? Have you been raised from the dead? you believe in resurrection? Oh, yes, Pastor, I believe in resurrection. Really? Tell me what happened, man. Oh, I was on a mountain, and, you know, off we go. I'd tell you about smoking hash when I was about ninth grade is what I'd probably tell you about. I think somebody inserted some stuff in there that was not supposed to be in there, and that was the only time I ever had what I'd call a real trip, I guess you could say. Uh, Well, that was my resurrection. Why not? I mean, that's what was being said in the 60s. They were religious experiences. You see a religious experience now. But liberal Protestant view, again, what you're doing is you're, and there's language I'm going to use there's a great book on this, but, but you're forming an analogy between my experience and the experience of the author. The Scripture now becomes a window into the Word. The Word, the kerygma, the kernel of the Word, of which is sitting in Paul and his experience. If I can use the Scripture to get in touch with Paul... I have the Word of God, and I'm going to form an analogy between me and Paul, and there we have it. Okay? That's that's one view. Now, another view, reader response, or sometimes called Neo-Orthodox view, it's not Paul that's inspired. It's not the words, the verbal inspiration, the Scripture words itself that are inspired, or breathed out. It's me, when I read Scripture, that is inspired. Now, that is probably 90% of populist evangelicalism. Even though we know it's a heresy. Historically, according to Orthodox Christians. It's this idea that the reader is inspired. It confuses the doctrine of inspiration with illumination. And, and, and in terms of the Bible is God's word only insofar as God speaks through it to the individual reader. So it's, it becomes the word of God as it is transforming me. Now it's true. Has the word of God truly fulfilled its ultimate purpose if it never uh, impacts me? No. I mean there's a sense in which the word has a purpose, a missional purpose to it, which is to, uh, uh, to save me. But that's different than saying the meaning of the scripture now is attached to my experience of the word. So we used to have in the back in the 70s this thing called the Serendipity Bible Studies. It was classic neo-orthodoxy. You would go around the room, everybody would read the Bible. Hey, now, guys, this is where you really want to get in touch with the Spirit. The more creative, the better. You know, Paul, what does that passage mean to me? Well, to me, man, that passage is telling me to do blank. What about you? Something totally different. What about you? Something totally. And every time, go. Wow, that's great. The Holy Spirit is really, the Word of God is in you. Now, I just want to ask you, who's the Lord? I mean, where is the Lordship of Christ in an objective way able to say to me, "No, (laughs) yes"? (laughs) You see, there's no way to do that. Um, And so, there's a very subtle situation here. So, don't confuse inspiration with. Paul is inspired. Don't in, and, and don't ins, and, and confuse inspiration with, because that's what led basically to the demythologizing of the Scripture and the whole Jesus uh, movement and all that. Uh, don't in, and, and, and misunderstand um, inspiration to be that I'm inspired... No, the words themselves, the words, are inspired. That's where the charisma is. That's where the action is. And to the degree that I understand those words in their own redemptive historical context, all of that is to the degree that I know God is saying, thus saith the Lord. Okay, we've got about six more minutes, and so um, there are a couple of more examples of, of things. I'll, I'm going to do this pretty quickly because it might, I don't want it to kind of get boring. But, the you know, the, the social hermeneutic um, is a biblical text is like a kernel or a seed. Over time, it begins to see more and more of what was in the Bible text. It is in and through God's actions in the world that meaning is to be found. and then move back to the text and fill it out with the meaning. Now, this is what's called today, and I'm going to give you a little bit of it. This is a very, very important one today, so I actually am going to slow down on this one if I can find it real quick. Where's my little supplemental here? I have a thing I'm going to show you. This is this is going to get us to, um, I'll make this bigger for you, I promise. Are you able to see this at all? Well, let me go back over here. Where'd you go, baby? Okay. There we go. That's what I wanted. Um, let me try to say it this way. Um, Well, here it is. There's a thing that's called, today, a new hermeneutic is called, what's called trajectory hermeneutic. Has anybody ever heard of that? Trajectory hermeneutic. Well, if you haven't heard of it, you, you have seen it utilized, I can guarantee you. Uh, trajectory hermeneutic. and I'm going to go ahead and, and just do it right here. It's a hermeneutic is the study of, you know, I won't go through that. Um, this is a little thing i I've set up here, trajectory. So the idea is that you, you, trajectory hermeneutics, or redemptive movement hermeneutics, R-H-M-H, is a hermeneutical approach. Hermeneutics by means what? It means Bible interpret. how to interpret the Bible. So this is, a process, this is a method of Bible interpretation. Uh, a hermeneutic approach is to seek to locate a topic within the text, follow its trajectory through Scripture to see how God was slowly working to redeem that topic, and move the world towards a better standard. Once the trajectory is identified, it is then extrapolated into the present-day world to see how we would view the same topic today. So let me give you an example. Uh, inclusion. We certainly can see that we move from a very small little clan to a larger clan, but the vision of this being a multinational movement. We see how uh, the Scripture uh, clarifies even the role of women, their relationship to the redemptive covenant. So by the time you get a new covenant, we see women are much more empowered, say, than they were in the Old Testament. We see slavery issues in the Old Testament being clarified in the New Testament. Now what are we seeing here? We're seeing a trajectory of, of, um, inclusiveness. That's, and we're going to say, we're going to pick up now with that trajectory, and let's now fast forward to 21st century, where does there need to be inclusiveness today? Now, this is the primary argument that will argue for, um, gay, uh, lesbian marriage. It's the idea, and people who are Christians, and they can be for real Christians but who understand the Scripture, and, and but what did you just do? You basically are saying, redemptive history continues. Now what I'm going to say is, yes, redemptive history continues, but not revelatory redemptive history. In other words, we see in Scripture, and we're going to look at that in a minute, that, that the history that was intended to inform us, to reveal to us God's will for our lives, is those histories, supernaturally, wherein they are interpreted by those authors that were given by God to interpret those. And once they are interpreted, it's done. And so what you have here is, is a, a hermeneutic or redemptive movement hermeneutic to see the subject from the point of view of the original recipients. The subject is then traced through a progressive trajectory through history, and finally the subject's trajectory is assumed to continue beyond the New Testament to affect issues in our world today that never could have been envisioned by the, by the New Testament authors. And there are many other such instances of how that would be used. And it's a trajectory. Now, on the one hand, that tells you, just as a social commentary, that, that um, look, Christians can differ even about things that we hold very dear. Um, you, I, you know, this is a bad hermeneutic. You can perhaps be born again, saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, but have a very bad Hermeneutic or understanding of how to interpret the Scripture, in my humble opinion. So I want to say that not to condemn, but well, well, certainly I, I reject this hermeneutic. But we don't have to then go the whole mile and make them, you know, and say, hold it now. This is a person that could still be a Christian, and we need to be a little more gracious, like when we talk about this. I mean, but in, wouldn't that change the way you interact with someone if they say, "I'm a Christian and I believe in gay marriage"? Well, remember, you may be talking to a brother and sister who truly has just been misinformed or doesn't understand how to read the Bible. And off you go. Because we certainly see in the Scripture that, that gay marriage is off limits. I mean, I can point you to passages that are very, very clear. We did it not long ago in, in Timothy. And most even of these guys will say, I admit that. but we're, we, we, we concede that point. But redemptive history isn't over. And we're going to have to make a case for, no, but the revelatory history is. This gets you to another topic, which we're going to go back to in a minute. But what do you believe about prophesying? Do you believe in prophesying today? What is prophesying? Do you believe in the supernatural activity of God? 1 Timothy 2, and what you have heard from me through many witnesses. Well, hold on, I don't want to read that. I want to read this one first. Uh, Where is it? I'm sorry. So here's the passage I wanted to read, Thessalonians, quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying. Okay? So I hope, and you've heard a sermon if you've been here long enough, I hope you don't not believe in prophesying. My Bible tells me right here, and there's no way to look around it, I better believe in it, because if I don't, I'm quenching the Holy Spirit. So do you believe in the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit? Yep. Do you want the Holy Spirit to be speaking to you? Yep. Do you believe in prophesying today? Yep. Notice I didn't make any, period, no equivocation. But now, what is prophesying? And there's this next line, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. First John speaks about this, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the assumption here is there's a lot of false prophesying going on. That claims to be prophesying that's not. How would you know the difference? Um, Well, we know that there's false prophets, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, that's interesting because already we're being directed here that where do we, how do we locate true prophesying? Well, something, it's going to have something to do with the rule or the canon, the the way in which you measure, it's going to be according to the apostolic teachings. And then you're going to go and um, and, and you're going to hear this t- for, in the way that Timothy will answer that question because that's what I was we were talking about first. What you have heard from me, no, isn't that an arrogant statement? Can you imagine Preston Graham saying that to you? What you've heard from me, you go and trust a faithful witness and entrust those to the and you just keep. Talk, it's it's all about what I've given you here. Now Paul, of course, isn't being arrogant. He recognizes himself among the other apostles who have been uniquely given that commission in John chapter 14 and following, where when the Holy Spirit is coming, he's gonna what? He's gonna continue the revelation from me, Christ speaking, that I have intended for you. We're set up. Now who's the who's Christ talking to? He's up in the upper room here. He's not in the crowds talking to all the all the people who are Christians. He has pulled together the upper room, the apostles of Jesus Christ he is telling them that he is going to go to a place that they can't go but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he will interpret for you, he will reveal that to you which is yet to be revealed. He is literally, in, and then he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit in the end of John and he tells them to go out and, and just as I've, God sent me I've sent you. And so therefore we see a doctrine, this is very consistent with how prophets were set up in the Old Testament as well, through the breathing of the Holy Spirit, through the special commissioning to do this by previous recognized prophets, etc. And so what, are you, what, are you gonna, what do you think they mean when it says test the spirits? Well, if someone is saying, thus saith the Lord, test it against the Scripture. Basically, that's right. You go back to what has already been revealed as Scripture and authenticated, and you test it. So where do you see prophecy every, uh, in your life? Where do you get it? It's a sermon. It's, it's the sermon. It's a live event, Holy Spirit working through that event, but you should test it. So I think of the Bereans. You know, when Paul came to, to uh, even, the, even the apostles had to defend themselves based on previous revelation in Scripture. And you could say that was pretty much all Paul ever did. You just read Romans, any of his stuff, he is just constantly, this is not a new religion, this revelation is consistent with previous revelation, test me if you want. And so the Bereans took him up on it. And of course you know the Berean passions when Paul and Silas arrived in Berea they went into the Jewish synagogue to preach and teach and they received the Word of God with eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things that Paul was telling them were so. Boy, is that the kind of congregation we need today. Every church you go to, that's what I wish would happen, starting here. That you would test every word that we say, you know, to, to preserve that apostolic truth. So prophesying today is preaching the word of God faithfully, basically. And there it is, that there is a, there's truly the word is alive. It is still active according to Hebrews, in your life. But the meaning of the Scripture is contained to the Scripture. The meaning of God's Word is contained to Scripture, even if then the illumination of that Word and the manner in which it affects my life is, is, is something that's going to impact me. And so that's one of the big issues. Um, we, we are pretty much out of time now, so I'm going to have to stop. Um, The sufficiency of Scripture, um, there is a paper on canonics, the canon of Scripture, that you can read, and if you want to come back next week, you can ask me about that, but there's another paper if you're asking the question about, but let's just see if you have a few, we have about seven minutes here uh, for questions, and I'm going to stop there, but hopefully you've seen the work the, 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 the nature of Scripture is going to have a direct impact with how we think it functions and its purpose uh, in our lives. That was an illustration of that. You have a lot more in your handout, and you can read it, and hopefully that'll be helpful. Also, read Hodge, that commentary. Did anybody even try to read Hodge? Nobody yet? You did? What'd you think? It's pretty good, isn't it? Even though it's got some of that old 19 stuff, but it's clear. So that's helpful. So I'd encourage you to, and use your, your commentary, even if you don't read it, it's your source. When you're doing a Bible study, I'll say this now, I'll say it later, I would encourage everyone to locate everything you teach, if you ever teach it or do anything, find the theological topic. Say, okay, this is about sin. Well, let me go back and read the confession about what sin is and isn't. And it's going to give you these amazing parameters you know, it, I didn't get into the, the relation of the Holy. We did talk a little bit about the relation of the Holy Spirit to Scripture, but we didn't talk a lot about the relation of church and Scripture. Clearly, the church is not your only rule of faith and practice. But the intention of the church is that the church is, a, is a, interpreting the Scripture communally as through the ages. So what you have in that confession, and I mentioned that last week, is an amazing gift. To see, well, how has the church over 2,000 years, reading the same scripture I am, under the same principles of what the scripture is, how has the church of Jesus Christ understood the meaning of sin? And what you'll be given is this nice little summary statement that'll put the edges to it, like the, the, a road, it'll put the guardrails on it. And it's going to protect you. And so that is a wonderful and important method of interpreting Scripture. Reading Scripture communally with, with your confession. And I do every week. Every week I can tell you the confession is in the background. as I'm thinking, okay, wh- wh- where, where is this going here? And how do I understand this doctrine or idea in light of Scripture and what it generally teaches is, is affirmed by the church. Okay, questions. you got about six, seven minutes. Yeah. So,
2: in inspiration, heard this before, but the the divine human inter- interaction—the words themselves are God's words, right? Right. But so I've I've always been kind of curious, like in First um, Corinthians seven, okay. When Paul's giving instructions about marriage, and he says to the rest, I say, yeah. "I, not the Lord." Yeah. That if I'm any brother has a wife, then what? Yeah. That's in a couple places.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is that is that so, moment? Is that is that Paul saying this isn't scripture?
2: Yeah, that's why I've always.
1: Yeah. Heard. Yes and no. Okay, the admonishment is not, thus saith the Lord, to, uh, as a, what he's basically saying is, this is not a law of God. What I'm about to say is not a binding law. It's, it's, but it is scripture. Yes, it's scripture. What, even that verse, um, and even wh- what that verse is about, I think, is that he, he what, preferred that many Mary, or I can't remember the exact, that.
2: brother doesn't leave his wife if, if she's an unbeliever.
1: Well, that part's good, but well, I think what, what he's, he's talking... He's
2: saying, the rest is saying, I'm not the Lord, that if my, any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she gets out to live, it, then you should
1: have the horse. Right. And
2: that's the I'm
1: not the Lord part. Okay, I, I thought that point was not to be married somewhere. Mm-hmm. Did you not... Well, there's,
2: there's others, yeah, I think yeah. You know, as long yeah. there's
1: another one. Well, here's the point I'm, I'm trying to say, is that um, mm-hmm. when you... When mm-hmm. th- let me try to say this quickly, but... Um, You'll certainly find things like that in Scripture. That's not uncommon where, where Paul or in the narrative. We have all kinds of cases where it's part of Scripture. It is the Word of God, but interpret it the way the Word of God wants you to interpret it. So he's telling you how to interpret what he's saying, in effect. He's saying, now, in this instance, you know, I'm, sug- I'm saying to you that, that blank... But this is not an, a, a universal rule. This is what I see in your situation for you. In the, in the Corinthian context, Do you see the difference. So another passage which would make it a little easier is is something, something effective. I'd prefer you not marry. I can't remember. Now it's a
2: concession, not a command.
1: I said this. I wish that all were as I am. Yes, that's yeah. Single. And so what is he saying? He's not saying you're more spiritual to be single. What he is saying, though, is that, that being single is a calling, and, a, and, a, and it's being affirmed as something that, that people can aspire to. It, it really is part of what establishes the idea of celibacy as a sacred calling, that language. But it's not a calling for everyone. You see? I'm just going to interpret that the way it comes to me. And say, okay, it's, so I'm not, if someone comes to me, you're more spiritual to be celibate than to be married, I'm going to say, that's not what Paul says there. He makes it very clear that this was a calling for him. So but he's not imposing that on anybody else. Doesn't he also say, in view of your present troubles? Yeah. So he could see persecution as Yeah, part of that really is that. Of yeah. Connection. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of stuff there, but but you see what I'm saying. So that's a great question, though. But I love that because um, there is a sense in which even in a sermon, um, we want to distinguish that which is being you know proclaimed as "Thus saith the Lord" versus that which is you know. And I try to even do that. I'm I, usually you know people have critiqued me because I don't give enough application. But part of it is because I'm afraid it will be confused with "Thus saith the Lord." But on the other hand, there's there does need to be. And so I'm learning more and more to try to. Let's give more application, but I'm going to try to couch it a little bit and say, "Here's a way you could do this. Here's a way you could do this. Here's a way you could do." It. Versus, you know, therefore do this. Any um, other questions? Yeah. I
2: was just wondering placing um, this uh, doctrine of scripture with the context of like, especially the last week, whether we can have any like distinguishing features between like perspic- uh, perspicuity and a religious experience, essentially. So we talk about like. It's certain things which are objective,
1: but of course, yeah. like, you can have fantastic biblical scholars who aren't Christians, and the purpose of that, and essentially, they're actually we
2: are kind of like experiential like, Christians. to reclaim that that like, you, you read you read to the Bible, which itself can only be enabled by the Spirit.
1: I'm not positive. I heard a couple of questions there, and I'm not sure which one was the right question. But um, So you, you mentioned perspicuity. So for everybody else, uh, we, what we mean by that is clarity. It's, it's that, that there's a passage in our in, in our confession says that, the perspicuity of Scripture. There's a, there's a passage in, in the uh, Westminster that speaks to the perspicuity. And what they're talking about there is that what it is that we need to believe is clear enough to all people if they will read it. In other words, it's not saying it, our, our scripture will, our, I'm sorry, our Westminster will concede that not all scripture is equally easy to understand. And of course, even Peter says, you know, Paul's really hard to understand. But what we need unto salvation, all things related to matters of salvation, is clear enough. And, um, and so there is a sense in which that kind of gives you encouragement on, on, on one hand, but also a challenge on the other. And I'm, I'm, I, know this, I don't think this is your question, but just a little side. It tells you that, that look, on the one hand, um, if you're the type of person that says, I'm afraid to even read my Bible, because I don't know if I'm going to understand it, I'm going to say, bahooky, read it all the time, because you will get a lot of good, right, stuff from it. It's, all, it's not that hard. It really isn't that hard to understand. Your English translations are very, very, very good, very, very, very faithful. You know, you're going to get a a really good reading of the Scripture if you'll just read it. So read it. But don't try to be an expert. Don't try to dig deep on your own um, and and answer sort of the high-level questions that that can come out of that. That's where you want to read it with your church and hopefully your church is reading it with the church and hopefully there are those who, who are capable of, of going into its original language, going into its, its history and, and who've made a living studying it that can maybe help you even more understand it, but at the end of the day there is no infallible reader of the Bible we all know that, only the scripture is infallible we didn't get to some of the good stuff there but to your point, I'm not sure I think what I'm hearing is, is could you be a non-Christian and understand the Bible and I'm going to say yeah um, you can understand it uh, if you underst- in terms of you could say this is what Paul is saying. In terms of the linguistic sense of it, or the historical observation of it, or whatever it is, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's a very famous Bootman is a very famous interpreter of the scriptures, a New Testament scholar who was not a believer, um, but he, he, you know, I would consider some of his observations and what he observes, but at the end of the day, does he really? But has the Word, that part that's the mystical mind of God in the soul of man, humanity, has that is has he understood the Word? No. Not until he's saved. Because we know all scriptures inspire God, probably for, you know, basically, ultimately, for salvation. So he hasn't really understood the scripture, and I would certainly therefore read him with a little bit of a, of a cautiousness for how he could very easily, you know, he's a good scholar, the better scholar the better maybe in terms of getting beyond his own biases. But fundamentally there's going to be an unbelieving bias that you would expect to show up somewhere somehow, and I'm going to listen for it. Even if you know um, he can get it right in a lot of ways, he can tell me what the Greek word means as good as anybody, having done the semantic studies and all that. Other question? Go for it. Um, so I've always thought one of the gifts with the
2: Scripture coming from the Holy Spirit was that it can be not easily, but can be translated in all the languages of the world that comes from multiple.
1: It can be, it's so just like English, it's in English. So I can
2: understand it.
1: Yeah.
2: Pretty much completely. Now, well,
1: I wouldn't I say completely. Speech, you
2: know, like that if there's not somebody who's a great scholar, and can go
1: through these words. I, I don't want to get you hung up on that. I mean, there is a great advantage if you're looking for the objectivity of the word. That is, what is it that God has spoken? And there, it's outside of yourself. That's what I mean by objectivity. The more you know of the scripture, the more you're going to find that objectivity, Right. And I mean that about not just the Greek words, but I mean about the historical context. I mean the literary genre. I mean I'm going to interpret apocalyptic literature differently. If you, I mean, if, if you know, if you don't understand apocalyptic literature, how would I understand it by studying Scripture and studying the use of that kind of literary genre? So the, you know, there's a book by the way called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Stuart and Fee. It's probably the best book I know, and it goes through each you know genre of Scripture. And how genre is going to inform you as to how to understand and read and interpret that portion of Scripture. Um, So the language is no different. You know, Greek is Greek. It has incredible qualities to it that, that, that you would not be able to pick up. The word of... Um, that, that you may or may not have in English, uh, could be interpreting not a, a, a word that's in the Greek of, but a genitive. Uh, 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 and so that genitive has all sorts of, of, of possibilities, and that's why you read your Bible, and you'll see all kinds of translations. What I'm saying to you is you can read your Bible, and you can, regard if you were to read Romans... And uh, and you would come up and, and you would see that, that that you would not see you would be it'd be totally obscured to you in your English if you're reading I think it's the NIV or even ESV it'd be obscured to you that Paul is putting together this masterful argument about boasting and what you can boast in what you can't boast in it'd be obscured because uh, particularly when you get to chapter five when kalkametha the Greek word that he's been using referring to ma- for you know for uh, Abraham etc is now being said you can boast in your sufferings. And you can boast in in your justification, and you can boast all the time, having said before, don't ever boast, don't ever boast, don't ever boast. And what he's doing is building this incredible contract. Don't tell me that's not going to help me understand the punch line. Of Paul's point, but you're not going to get that reading your English. But what you are going to get is that Abraham is my father. That, it, that my, is, a, is a doctrine of faith. That it, I won't know that he used the word boast to describe that Abraham doesn't boast in his works, but boasts in faith. He'll say he doesn't believe in his works; he believed in his faith. That's all right. So you've lost the, some punch. You've you've lost some nuance. But you have never, you're not going to lose your salvation or anything that's crucial to your salvation by virtue of that by your English Bible. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, because
2: I'm not thinking about us in the West.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, and I'm going to say the same thing. So, what do you need to So, what do you need to translate the Bible? You better have someone that really is a good Bible scholar first, and then you need to have someone who is a really good, and I mean, original language Bible scholar first, and then you need someone who is a really good linguistic person who can who understands the 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 semantic range and use of words in their original setting. Unfortunately, there can be therefore better and worse translations. Doesn't mean you don't do it. I mean, I think a lot of translators took English and they translated it to Swahili, perhaps. Maybe not. You know, even our Bible, I mean, I don't want to get you in the history of that, but, but uh, you know, and, and, and believe it or not, there's a human side to all this. But don't, the encouragement thing to you is there is a religious zeal that's been assigned to interpreting the scripture and translating it. Believe me, if you get it wrong, you're going to have a whole slew of people telling you. And so what you got in your English is a really good, wonderful translation of the Greek, Hebrew, and in some ways, Aramaic. And you should be very confident in it insofar as it being a rule of faith and practice for you. But when you get into the nuances, it can really matter. I think I've got to go now. We've got 10 minutes. Um, thank you for being here. I hope that's been helpful. I can't tell you how frustrating it is that we don't have an hour and a half and there's just not a give and take the way we normally would do it. Um, but if you look at the, uh, the the handout, and I would strongly encourage you every week to come having already reviewed the handout you will be able to go right to the jugular of some of the questions you may have that we didn't get to talk about today and you can ask me about it, okay? So God bless.
0: Thanks for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked the show, please consider a five-star rating. Share it with your friends or write to us. For this episode's show notes, visit our website. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.